Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to our spooktastic programming for the month of October. That's right, Horrifying Classics 2021. This year's theme, Contemporary Horror, aims to introduce notable horror novels from the last few years, especially debut horror novels, which may one day become horrifying classics. Today's collection of spooky short contemporary fiction, The Dollmaster and Other Tales of Terror by none other than Joyce Carol Oates, puts an end, a closing chapter, if you will, to our horrifying Classics 2021 series. I will be reviewing three shorts from that collection on this episode and three for our November Patreon episode, so you can visit patreon.com slash relevance of literature if you want to hear what I have to say about the rest of the collection. Joyce Carol Oates is a writer whom I've been recommended to read over and over again by different people in my life, especially since she's written so much quality fiction. She is prolific and has a lot to offer in terms of her contributions to various forms of contemporary fiction, and I learned even from this short foray into her work with horrifying classics, how to be a more attentive reader, how to be a better writer, especially in this short form, so there's a lot to discuss today. Genre and form. Starting off with genre, this particular collection I would put firmly in the contemporary fiction or contemporary horror genre. That's where I would put most, if not all, of Oates's works. As I said in the intro, I have a more limited experience with Oates as a writer than others, and definitely than I would prefer to have, considering how influential her work has been. But from what I know of her and of her works, I would definitely put her within this contemporary fiction genre, which essentially just means that it's fiction that challenges, it's fiction that is a bit harder to read sometimes, it's fiction that is creative, and of course contemporary, meaning that it's been created in the modern time we're doing contemporary horror, so all of our authors this season for horrifying classics are alive currently, and that's clearly a very important element of contemporary fiction. I will note though that each short story has a tone of its own, it has a mood of its own as well. The tone comes from the author and the mood comes from the setting, the narrator, other parts of the text. And most of these short stories, I think with only one exception in my opinion, maintain this contemporary horror genre throughout. The one exception would be the last short story, which we will discuss today, called Mystery Inc. That is so close to detective fiction, mystery fiction, 
murder fiction a little bit. There's just so much there to look at with regard to that short story, and it mimics the genre so well in itself. So there's kind of a meta commentary going on, which is why I would still place it in the contemporary fiction genre because there's so much on in terms of the form, in terms of how it's written, that belongs in my mind to contemporary horror, contemporary fiction. But there are these amazing mystery elements that are so fun to dive into. The first story in the collection, The Dollmaster, which is the title short story of the collection, also has maybe a few gothic elements to it. It is very death-centered, very macabre, as are a lot of these short stories. The short stories are also quite psychological. If you remember the short story by Joyce Carol Oates that we reviewed before Horrifying Classics started, you can get a sense there for all of the interesting psychological factors at play in a lot of her writing. Those are certainly present throughout this collection. So in terms of the primary genre, I would still go with contemporary fiction, contemporary horror, with a couple subgenres, perhaps of psychological horror, perhaps of gothic horror, and for that one short story, the mystery detective fiction bend. In terms of the format or form of this collection, what I enjoyed about it is that there's only six short stories in the entire collection. I feel that I've read a lot of collections, especially contemporary collections. I think of the collection I read a couple years ago by Peter Kispert that comes most to mind. Um, maybe even some of the Kurt Vonnegut collections at some points, but this collection has longer form short stories, which I've really appreciated. It reminds me somewhat of David Sedaris's work, although his work is completely different in terms of meaning and content and what it's for and all of that. So, but in terms of purely the form, it reminds me a lot of that or some of Kurt Vonnegut's fiction are in between, have these longer forms. And what I really liked about the form of this short story collection is that it starts out with a rather short piece, The Dollmaster, which is short and concise, and I read it in one sitting. Soldier, the second piece, is also relatively short, within the 30 to 45 page mark. I also read that in one sitting, and then there's two longer texts, Gun Accident and Investigation, and then Equatorial, both very long uh, to get through, like double the length of the first two, and then it gets back into these shorter texts. Mystery Inc. is about a mid-length compared to the others in the collection, and Big Mama, the fifth short story in the collection is about at that 40 page mark as well. So I really liked how the slowest sort of most rambling, most umbulatory short stories were in the middle of the collection and the front and back ends of it moved rather swiftly and were very punctual. They were very pointed in that sense as well. 
and I thought that moved really well with my own sense of how the short story collection was going, how the stories evolved, and also how the short stories read one right after the other. I think ordering is so important in a short story collection, much like an album of music, for example. If you put songs that are just one right after the other that are so different, that can get pretty exhausting in a long form of an album and a novel slash collection as well. Um, and in this one, what I liked was we had not only with the length, with part of the pacing of these stories, some similarities, there were enough differences in them. So for example, I found the Dollmaster to move quite quickly pacing-wise towards the end of the short story as everything is sort of unmasked for us. And then Soldier, the second story, moves slower, 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 and then again has this kind of funny turn at the end but the turn at the end has a different tone to it than the one in The Dollmaster. And then the two longer short stories, again, have the kind of similar pacing from my memory, but have these endings that are distinct from one another and almost play off of one another in a way. These short stories were not published together originally. This is not the first publication of them by any means. I can read from page 317 at the very back of here. The Dollmaster originally appeared in the Doll Collection, edition Ellen Datlow by Tor Books in 2015. Soldier originally appeared in the Idaho Review in 2015. Gun Accident, Equatorial, and Big Mama all originally appeared in Ellery Queen in 2014 through 2016, three different years there, and Mystery Inc. originally appeared in the Mysterious Bookshop's Biblio Mystery series in 2015. So these are all short stories taken from around the same time, so within a three-year period between 2014 and 2016, yet they were all published in fairly separate occasions, and they're all brought together here in this wonderful collection. So there are similarities. There are similarities, especially I think in her writing at this point in time, um, six years ago at this point, crazy to say, <laughs> but they are all distinctly different. I think something that's struck me so much and that I'll talk about later is the endings of the short stories and how different they were, even though Oates definitely uses the ending as in a choice way and it seems like she was developing her style of ending throughout and experimenting as well, which I really enjoyed reading. The Dollmaster The Dollmaster is a short story, the first one in the collection as I've mentioned, that starts out with our young narrator interacting with his cousin Amy who is into dolls and she allows him to hold the doll for her just briefly, this beloved doll, and Amy eventually gets an illness and dies and so What's interesting is that this association with dolls that the narrator starts out with starts with his cousin Amy, of course, starts with this precious special moment, and also is connected to death immediately. 
after Amy dies, this narrator has this these moments throughout his life and we follow him for quite a number of years and the pacing is slow and ambling but we're covering a lot of ground and I think that's something that takes a lot of tact to accomplish where you are passing a lot of time but you don't feel like you're passing a lot of time and the time in this case is passing by the dolls that the narrator collects, the dolls so to speak, and I'll read from page five. The first of the found dolls was Mariska. Take her, but don't drop her. My friend spoke quietly, urgently, glancing about to see if anyone was watching. Many times I'd walked to school, and home from school, avoiding the school bus where there were older boys who taunted me. My family's house was at the top of Prospect Hill above the city, and looking toward the river, which was often wreathed in mist. Unquote. And that was, again, from page five of the collection. So interesting how we start with this boy who has this sort of imaginary friend is what I envisioned this friend as at first. The friend is capitalized in the book. That's also something very distinctive that I found about Carol Oates' writing. Uh, it's the way that she uses punctuation, especially italicization and parentheses in this short story and in others, especially also the one we read before Horrifying Classics. And in terms of the capitalization here of friend, and we know there's something a little bit off about this friend. This is not a real life friend in any respect, as is continuously confirmed throughout the short story. More of a voice in his head that he's given the name of friend. And the friend talks in italics throughout the short story. I'll take from page seven here, quote, she is our prize. She is the one we've been waiting for. Hurry, take her. No one will see, unquote. So again, this is the friend talking. This is in italics. This is very creepy, first of all, for this young kid, middle school kid to be, you know, interacting with a voice in his head that he's personified in this way and that is telling him these things. So we follow this kid throughout middle school and high school and early college age, though he doesn't go to college. He stays at his childhood home, essentially, with his mother. There's a divorce that happens, so there is some childhood unrest, unquiet trauma there, and he continues finding these dolls. There's girl dolls, there's eventually a boy doll, and all the dolls are different, and he talks about the dolls' different qualities with regard to their weight, how much they quote-unquote struggle when he takes them from their homes or owners or finds them in any state, and you know, he finds one in a park, he finds one farther away, and the dolls are always correlated with children who have gone missing. And with PSAs at his schools, for example, don't go with strangers, X, Y, and Z, the normal PSAs that you would hear when horrible things like this happen, when children start to go missing, especially in a small area like the area that he is living in. 
so there's a sense early on that there's something unwell about not only our narrator but about this situation with the dolls and the missing children there's a reality that's very real right it's very tangible very familiar at least to me having grown up in the u.s for example having attended public schools i'm sure similar to the public schools in the story <laughs> just to give some banal examples um yet there's this heavy cloak over the whole story that is and what i love about the way that it's painted is that it's so it's so pert in that way so i'll take from page eight um morisco was heavier than you would think a ceramic doll is a heavy doll morisco's arms and legs were awkwardly spread by force i managed to subdue them I could not hide Mariska in my room where she would be found by my mother or a housekeeper. I could not hide Mariska anywhere in the house, though it was a large house with three stories and many of its rooms shut off. So I brought her to the carriage house, which was used as a garage for my parents' vehicles and as a place for storage and where I believed the beautiful ceramic doll would be safe, wrapped in canvas many times and placed in one of the horse stalls in the cobwebby shadow." Unquote. So, again, there's this weird, just this weird sense of, like, okay, you know, he's a adolescent boy, he has these weird thoughts, and he's hiding these dolls in, essentially, a, you know, a carriage house of an old mansion, an old garage, you know, the back of a dusty, dirty, black, dark, you know, garage in the middle of this town, and as... As the story continues, things get more and more creepy, <laughs> essentially. He ends up going to a psychiatrist uh, later on, and there's a doll in the psychiatrist's office, and the doll sits next to the psychiatrist and sort of stares at her, and they sort of have a internal dialogue together, and he never says much to the psychiatrist, but... There's a sense that this doll and the presence of the doll makes him very uncomfortable. He has an immediate connection to his other relationships, so to speak, with his dolls that he's been hiding. So, and the psychiatrist picks up on that to a certain extent, but not enough, as we'll see. After several years, after many, many dolls... Uh, this narrator is slowing down uh, his pace in that in that sense, and there's we start getting like smaller and smaller paragraphs, which I find to be interesting. So, on page twenty four, it talks about the sixth found doll and also the seventh, and we continue really, really rapidly moving forward. Uh, the particular narrator starts getting an online hobby which he posts pictures of his found dolls that are just quite creepy and people like the sense of macabre I suppose and so he has this small online community uh, he's living still with his mother and they eventually start uh, getting the sense that they're going to have to downsize in house so they are living these kind of parallel lives but it seems like they don't have much of a relationship 
It seems like he's not a very communicative person, and he's pretty distant from the reality around him. He's not really connected to anywhere but the online space, which we know is a frayed connection in a lot of senses, and to his dolls, and of course his friend, which his relationship with his friend inside also changes throughout the short story. And at the end, he is looking at his found dolls in the garage that he's collected over how many years, and his mother walks in on him, and I'll read from page 31 because uh, it's really best read from the text. Quote, Robbie, what is... In the crude light of mother's flashlight, the found dolls were revealed as small skeletons with rags of clothing and wisps of hair on their battered skulls. Their faces were school faces, with mirthless grins and eyeless sockets. Their bone arms were spread as for an embrace. This was mother's crude light, not the light of the doll master. Quickly, I took the flashlight from mother's shaking hand. Quickly, I, conf I comforted her, telling her that these were sculptures that I'd done, but had not wanted to show anyone. Sculptures? Here? I would explain to her, I said. But first, I would shut the outer door, unquote. Wow, what a creepy ending. That's the ending of the short story. And, you know, of course, there's not a huge surprise that these dolls are not actually dolls, but the young girls that he's murdered and kept in his garage all this time, starting from when he's in middle school, which is so horrifying. There's just this element almost... It's similar to Stephen King. Stephen King has this too, where it's so horrible you don't even want to think about it. And it's so real as well, it's so close to our present reality that we don't even want to think about it. This was definitely the creepiest short story in the collection to me. I'm sure that other short stories in the collection will hit people differently. Some people might not find this short story as creepy as I did, for example. Uh, for me, though, I found the symbolism to be so rich, and there's this slow and almost dull quality to the narration, and that's on purpose, that's b given by the narrator, who's kind of this, like, ambula ambulatory kind of narrator who, you know, is having this internal dialogue, and a lot of it is, you know, what is internal, what is external, what is going on, what is this obsession with the dolls that is so central throughout the short story, and it really takes you off guard when the narrator is thrust into these points of reality with the psychiatrist, with his mother at points, and then of course at the end when his mother comes and reveals everything to us as readers. The writing in this short story, as I've mentioned, is also so technically precise. We know enough of what's going on in the setting, for example, to have a full mental picture of the short story, what's happening, but we don't have enough information to get distracted in the details, a la authors like Haruki Murakami, for example. We're not, like, walking through his lunch, and it's something that definitely Haruki Murakami does and serves a different purpose and is wonderful in a different way. And what I liked about this is that it was so bare bones, and yet there was enough information. It was a saturated, well-formed short story, and yet it was 30-some-odd pages. 
Soldier. The second short story we will review today is the second in the collection called Soldier. This was such a timely short story in my opinion. I thought that these short stories were older than they were. I won't <laughs> sugarcoat that. I thought these were from the 90s. That is not the case. These are from only six years ago and what I like about a lot of Oates's writing, at least what I've read from her, which are a lot of short stories, I will get into her novels soon. <laughs> I will be reading We, we Are the Mulvanese soon. That's, that's on my quote-unquote hit list, so to speak, <laughs> for this year, maybe at the end of the year. And I still thought that it was timely. And what I like about Oates's writing from what I've read of it is that she's able to comment and take these very prevalent, persistent themes of our time and use them effectively in a short story. I feel like uh, in my writing and a lot of writing I've seen, when authors try to comment in real time on what's happening, the message gets lost. That magic, that special meaning, that special quality that contemporary fiction and writing can bring to an issue gets lost and that's definitely not the case with this. So Soldier is a short story that follows the trial essentially of this convicted or rather pending murderer and it's this guy who killed uh, this young black man in an alleyway and the perpetrator is white and he had a gun that did not belong to him that he was not legally able to carry around that wasn't even his gun as i said he was not trained big issues here and also issues that are very pertinent to our time so we follow the trials of this guy who it seems by and large like he's getting off the hook. That's what he thinks at least. So he spends some time in prison while he's awaiting trial and he gets all this hate mail that he talks about and the hate mail is kind of interspliced through the short story in a really engaging way where we get these little pieces of um, pieces of what he's experiencing and what he's thinking, you know, uh, and also things that people have said to him, for example. So on page 49, we are all so proud of you, son. You know, it's so interesting. And people are raising money to bail him out. So it's very much from the skewed perspective, almost like, you know, the perspective of this guy who is a murderer. You know, you can't really frame that any different way. Um, but there's a lot of ambiguity about how this situation transpired. One thing that I really enjoyed about this short story, other than the ending, which we'll get to, is how there's two different threads. There's the thread of what the person, what the perpetrator essentially, legally told people or officially told people in court in the media this is the story that this person has created fabricated and told on repeat without variation and then there's a story of these memories that he has and the stories of 
little bits and pieces of this event, this tragic event, I might add, that come out as the narrator is narrating almost like they're slipping out of his subconscious. Not that he's thinking about them and thinking, wow, you know, these don't really fit with my actual official story, but it's almost like they are par for the course for his narration. These are things that he lives with, and it's a cognitive dissonance that is so fascinating to me to be able to walk as a reader in this narrator's subconscious and look at these two distinct stories, these two distinct distinct versions of him almost in his mind that coexist without a sort of meaningful breakdown <laughs> that happens. So, you know, for me, it was so easy for me to get into the story because of the timeliness of it, because it's so contemporary, because it's such a commentary on what's going on, uh, not only in 2015, but for continuing on into now. And it was challenging. It was so challenging in some ways because of that dichotomy and the cognitive dissonance. And it was hard to grasp at times, you know, the reality versus this narrator's reality. And I think that says a lot about these kinds of contemporary events that Oates is commenting on. And one thing that I will say over and over again is that <laughs> when you read fiction, it's about developing empathy for people, empathy for characters, and this narrator does die at the end of the story. It's one of those, like, surprise pop endings. That's the ending that Joyce Carol Oates is messing around with in this collection, um, with thinking through with every story, which I love. I think it was so great to see that kind of ending. That's not an ending that I see oftentimes in my own reading, so that was awesome. And what I loved about the ending, he gets a package, he's essentially at a safe house, he gets a package, and he's not supposed to be opening packages, obviously, because of bomb threats, etc. This is someone who's both hated and beloved. He's a symbol of everything that's wrong with America and everything that people love about America. You know, it's this kind of um, very dramatized window where there's only one black and white, right or wrong, you know, kind of situation. And um, Carol Oates embodies that dichotomy so well in this character. And so when this, when this killer takes the package in and we see at the very end of the story who it's addressed to, there's a specific misspelling of his name which was discussed or brought up in one of his hate messages that said something along the lines of, you know, when you least expect it, I will be there for you. And so there's, it's very clear what happens to him, but we don't get a bird's eye view. We don't even get a close eye view into him opening the package, for example, and meeting his end. So there's, it's, it's so, such an interesting way to end a book, end a short story rather. And so again, timely, there's this kind of dark humor at the end of the story, and there's also this complex bout of, on the one hand, developing empathy 
of a sort for this narrator who's being taken advantage of, but also who is terrible, who is, you know, objectively a terrible human being. And just the complex different layers of this story of what's going on with the actual reality versus the narrator's reality versus what Joyce Carol Oates wants us to see about this picture that she's drawing up so cleverly. Um, and it relates to the first short story in that regard. There's these different senses, different colors of realities that are so distinct. Mystery Ink. This is probably after The Dollmaster, my favorite short story in this collection. I also really liked one of the Patreon short stories that we'll go over called Big Mama, which again, it's a hilarious title. I found it so funny just <laughs> opening the page right at the table of contents and then even when I was going through the collection and seeing Big Mama and thinking, what is this? You know, this is so funny. Um, and it ends up being very serious and very morose and dark as with the rest of this collection. So I love that about Joyce Carol Oates too, that she's able to constantly sort of reframe the devices that she's using in ways that are so fitting to what she's writing and the themes and the moods that she is drive or er, driving through with her text. Mystery Inc. is one of those pieces that is unapologetically about books and unapologetically loves books. I feel the same way about Will Schwalbe's The End of Your Life book club, if you've ever read that book. It's a bit of a dark book because it talks about his mother's real life. This is a nonfiction book of uh, his mother's bout with cancer and the books that they read together before she passed away. And that is also a book that just unapologetically talks about books all the time, loves books, is self-aware about the fact that it loves books. I felt so similarly about this short story. The short story is about a bookseller, someone in the trade, so to speak. And the bookseller, as we'll learn very shortly into the <laughs> short story, goes around and acquires his bookstores by murdering the proprietors, by murdering the owners of the bookstores, and essentially offering bereaved widows and family members offers that they quote-unquote cannot refuse after the booksellers die of mysterious natural causes. So this particular bookseller is nefarious, obviously, in that regard. There's this kind of mystery element of, like, when did he start doing this, and why, and what's going on? This narrator is so down in the dumps. <laughs> like, this narrator is, it's so, again, from the empathy perspective, from being forced as a reader to take on this narrator's perspective for a time and live in his skin for a while, so interesting and there's so much there with how he views humanity for example and his own justifications for why he is murdering people and why he feels that's okay and why he feels taking on and working in this book business <laughs> that's another interesting theme there is the book business and the relationship with his mystery bookstores and his how he acquires those mystery bookstores, right? Which is sort of mysterious in itself. <laughs> so 
there's lots of literature that's talked about in this short story which I won't get into but there's just so much detective fiction here we've done a lot with Edgar Allan Poe on this show before especially our February series earlier this year that was so fun we walked through Poe's detective fiction there's a great little nod to Edgar Allan Poe actually several throughout this short story the book owner the book owner of mystery inc the bookstore that this narrator goes to um mr aaron neuhaus he loves poe he did his dissertation on poe evidently he has a statue of a raven in it and edgar Allan poe is referenced you know creator of dupont our uh, detective fiction heroine in Poe's short detective fiction. So there's a lot of nods to different detective series and fiction that we've read on this show and that I felt was just so lovely to read in a book, in a collection of short stories rather. Um, and in this short story in particular, it sets the mood so well. And the more you know about the literature that's referenced, the more you get the short story. And that's something that I love too, is that there's nuggets in there for those of us who are avid readers, who are interested in these kinds of genres, for example. So Mystery Inc. is, as I mentioned, a bookstore that this narrator goes to. He's interested in acquiring it. It's very well done. It's just a beautiful bookstore from how it's described. A couple of different levels in it. There's uh, art prints that are sold in it. There's uh, first editions. There's rare books. There's, of course, all about mystery and detective fiction as well. So it's just really a treasure trove. It's arranged and organized beautifully. It has great staff. And this person goes in and he meets the proprietor of the bookstore, Aaron Neuhaus. And Neuhaus takes the narrator up into his office. The narrator is in disguise. He's planning on poisoning Neuhaus essentially with these lint chocolate truffles that he brings. And he tries to play it off as, oh, I brought these truffles, haha, -ha, I forgot, you know, try one. And he's injected half of them with poison and half of them not with poison, so he can also enjoy a few. Neuhaus gives them cappuccino in his office. Again, beautiful office. There's a secret doorway for this office. There's a raging fireplace. There's a beautiful Italian cappuccino machine. There's rare books and, you know, one-of-a-kind kind of books. There's a book signed by Charles Dickens. Uh, I believe it's the original Bleak House. So again, just tons of nuggets for those of us who love literature and who are imbued in that world. They talk about books. They talk about the first editions. They talk about what's going on because our narrator is posing as a customer who could be potentially very lucrative for Neuhaus and therefore has this distinguished in. He doesn't know, quote unquote, about the business, although he does, of course. In that sense, he's playing dumb to get into Aaron Neuhaus's office for this very cup of cappuccino. And Aaron Neuhaus starts to tell him about how he acquired Mystery Inc., which is that there was the book store owner before him who was murdered by his son with an axe in the in the cellar supposedly and the bookseller before him was this 
person who inherited the bookstore from his grandfather and the grandfather had hanged himself in the cellar. So this bookstore has a long and dark history in itself and Aaron Neuhaus is kind of the most recent eclectic addition to the history and the interesting nature of this bookstore which was has been in business you know starting from 1912 or thereabouts and continuing into the present day so there's a lot of elements of that story that Aaron Neuhaus tells that are similar and touch on the elements that we get from our narrator so for example the first proprietor the first owner of the bookstore uh, also used poison to either detain or possibly potentially kill people um, and he would you know use it from this particular South African frog or bug or what have you, and so does our narrator. That's how what he's injected the lint truffles with. So what I find fascinating, first of all, is that is the development, right? And the development happens through dialogue mostly. It's description, and of course we're very much in the narrator's mind at the start of the story. And then as we get into it, it's just dialogue, 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 and the narrator becomes more and more disoriented as the story continues. Maybe the cappuccino's hitting him, who knows, until the end of the short story. <laughs> but um, we really only have this dialogue to go off of and very little reaction from the narrator. There's a couple interjection points, but it starts to become more and more mysterious as we get on and we realize that it's not all the narrator's game and the narrator is not as in control as he thinks he is. And so it has this detective fiction tone, this tone of fate woven throughout the piece. Fate versus accident um, is a big theme that we don't have time to get into, but is fascinating and so rich in this short story. And the ending was so quirky. So it turns out from what I can deduce from this detective piece that the cappuccino was laced with something and that the narrator was quickly dying. He like falls down the stairs very dramatically as he's trying to leave the office and he gets in his car and he's driving and he drives himself into the ocean as this is a seaside town. So what I loved about the ending is that the narrator's point of view, he's barely conscious, barely lucid at this point, and it's very much a closed and restricted gaze out uh, from the narrator, and yet we know exactly what's happening. It's like in the first story when we get a sense for what's going on, what the setting, for example, is of the Dollmaster, and yet we're, giving, we're given very little information. It's the same with this. This short story goes out simultaneously with a bang and with a hum. And that is something that I find to be so masterful about it. What I liked. Scares. The more that I think about this book, the more that I like it. So it will not surprise all of you that I am giving this book a 4.5 out of 5 scares. I realize the scale really is out of 4.5 at this point. Like, there is no 5 scare book. <laughs> but 4.5 out of 5 is my highest rating. So I believe... It was just so good. There were some short stories in it, which I'll talk about on the Patreon, that challenged me more than others. 
There were some that I immediately liked more than others, but on reflection, I've gotten a lot from reading this particular collection. Each story gave me a lot. I really had to dig in as a reader. It was challenged me. It was challenging to me, rather, uh, which I always find quite rewarding, uh, especially the more I read, the more it takes me to find something that challenges me. And it was such a thrilling thing to read. It was, it wasn't like these were just normal contemporary fiction stories, although those are also great from Joyce Carol Oates. Um, these have that dark moment, that dark theme or thrill of dread throughout, and I genuinely liked the collection. I hope I can read it again. The stories, as I mentioned in the very beginning, were different, but they had enough similarity to justify their belonging in a collection together. I thought the sequencing was well done, and the pacing between them was also quite well done. And finally, in conclusion, the stories were so sparse, and that was so masterful in my opinion. This Joyce Carol Oates' ability to write in such a sparse manner, almost like Hemingway in some senses, and also convey so much feeling and so much information. I really enjoyed getting to know Oates' conventions and her styles with writing a bit better, and ultimately I gained a lot from reading them. I would highly recommend this short story collection. That ends our Horrifying Classics 2021 series. I hope you enjoyed it. I did immensely. This was a different theme, obviously, than we normally do. Contemporary horror is, <laughs> by definition, right, not horrifying classics, but I did enjoy this ability to look at authors who are still alive, authors who are writing in a very timely manner throughout our 2021 series. We will be back very shortly with an episode on week 45 of reading for the year and to celebrate our 200th episode of the show, which is this episode. Thank you all so much for hanging in with me and I will see you on Monday. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.